Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm blessed to be the host. The man who is the star and the namesake is Victor Davis Hanson, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. You know, last podcast we recorded, we had hoped to get to some discussion of what was going on with Communist China and Chairman Xi, and we ran out of time, but we're going to pick it up on uh, this episode, also talk about the border crisis, and a couple of other issues. And we'll get to Chairman G right after these important messages. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So Victor, I'm sure you saw and everyone else did and i don't know maybe more information is going to come out between the day we're recording this podcast and the day this podcast airs but yesterday a video came out about the red china the communist party's congress which happens every five years and chairman g consolidated his power and in the midst of this meeting sitting to his left was the former a president who Jean Tao, and he was um, forcibly removed uh, from the proceedings of this. There were thousands of people there. I mean, what a message this thing sent. The guy looked like he didn't know what the hell was happening. Uh, <laughs> Xi uh, gave him the coldest shoulder in history. And, but uh, who knows if he's alive at the time we're speaking. Uh, but power has been consolidated. I uh, I believe no one has ever served more than two terms. This is his third term. He's 69. What the hell? He could be around for another uh, decade or two. So we have a, a man who is seeing himself as the direct descendant of Chairman Mao and uh, maybe ready to rock and roll in Taiwan also. So, Victor, any thoughts you have of the theater that was shown seen the other day? but of the broader uh, ramifications 
uh, for the consolidation of power by this very already very powerful leader of Red China. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, does anybody know what the official reason was that he was he supposed to be ill or did he have COVID? But it did seem like they wanted to performance art his removal, right? Or otherwise he wouldn't have been allowed to come in. And so right. I guess it was trying to send a message to everybody that you may be the prior uh, head of China, but you're going to be forcibly ejected because now I'm going to have a third term and the former system is not going to. I think they announced a new uh, central committee too, a new formation, more members, or I think 200 and something members. I guess what I took away from it was, is the uh, Bill Gates dash Tom Friedman dash Bill Clinton dash Gaga over China over now? Mike Bloomberg, don't forget him. Mike, Ray yeah. Dalio. Right? Yeah, Mike Bloomberg. Well, well, that's a multi-billion-dollar investment in Chinese startup companies. But I guess, and I think Bill Gates was really the first major multi-billion-dollar investor in China. But yeah, I mean, at some point, do we realize that that hammer and sickle behind his head really does mean a communist party with a direct descent to the largest mass murder in history, which was Mao Zedong. 70 million people were butchered by him. And he's still a revered icon in China, and it's under the auspices of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it reminds everybody that what we're dealing with, and the only thing, you know, when you mentioned the unmentionable and unspeakable, one of the things I had written about before was there's been a hundred, I don't know, a hundred million, no, excuse me, 200 million official infections in the United States from COVID, one million deaths we know of. And we just take it nonchalantly like, oh, China did it. Oh, they're lying. It wasn't a pangolin or bat. No, it started at the lab. Yep. Chinese military was in charge of the lab. Yep. They were dealing in gain-of-function research. Yep, there's some dark rumors that they were doing some crazy thing. Yep. And then what? I mean, what can you do about it? Are we going to not trade with them? Are we not going? No. And so that's what's so strange about this. This will have zero effect, Jack, on Americans that deal with China and appease China and profit from China. And that's because their tentacles are so deeply embedded within the corporate-finance-Wall-Street-media-academic world in the United States that you cannot, it's, it's hopeless. There's over 370,000 students here. They're right. price gouged and they pay a lot of the tuition for graduate programs that otherwise would be shaky. Uh, 1% of them probably, maybe, I don't know, 3,000 of them are direct informants for the China are engaged in espionage. Silicon Valley is the den of espionage. You name it. I mean, everything that we don't like in the world of commerce, whether it's dumping, currency manipulation, patent infringement, copyright theft, industrial espionage, they're the past masters at. And one million Wager, it doesn't matter. When it comes to China, everybody stops. Right. I don't see anything. You know, there's this, I saw, maybe it was in the Epoch Times, <laughs> some piece about that in the last few years, China has forcibly repatriated over 200,000 people in America, which I just, it came across as 
you know, you're coming home or we're going to kill grandma, something like that. Yeah. To think, to think, I mean, that's a slice of all the evil they do, but to think that that happens in our country, in our sovereign nation, maybe it's not sovereign anymore. Well, I mean, but, the American attitude is once somebody comes over here and they see how wonderful we are, then we're the insidious revolutionary force in the world that would happen with radical Islam. They come over here and you try to say, no, a lot of people from authoritarian societies or traditional societies come over here and they interpret our magnanimity as weakness to be exploited or they see as a decadent and they don't like it or they go back uh, chock full of secrets. So this idea that if you're from China and you're a Chinese nationalist and you're engaged in research in the United States, you're therefore so happy to be here. You're anti-Chinese is a myth. It's a big myth. And we don't know exactly what goes on. But anyway, it's it's another commentary that. And I, I it's one of those issues, Jack, you know, Silicon Valley is another one where the corporate. Right tells us, well, they're buccaneers, they're 19th century trailblazers, they're our, they're our version of the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, and this is good. This is free market, unlimited you know, capitalism. Then the left says, oh, <laughs> it's a monopoly, but it's our monopoly. They give money to us. Well, China's another issue that, like open borders, that, re that unites the elite of both parties. And it, the, for the left, it's Hey, I wore a Chinese uh, Mao cap in college with a little red star on it. And you know what? These are not white people. They're not those awful Russians. They're revolutionaries. And they're kind of left. They went a little bit too far, but they're kind of on our side. They're on the liberal side. And they've got really good propaganda about us being racist and 19th century yellow peril type uh, hatred of poor Chinese. And mm -hmm. then the right says, hey, you know what? My company made a lot of money in China, and I'm making a lot more money this year and next year. And so just be careful. And so they, and the same thing with open borders, you know, we get more of our constituents. Well, we get more cheap labor too. Let's agree to keep it open. Yeah. And there's a very few, when you get these issues that the corporate right and the socialist left agree on, you better be careful because that's going to be policy almost. Yeah. Yeah. And always on the on the corporate right, I'll say they the self delusion for years. I mean, maybe it was heartfelt at some point. We couldn't help but think that uh, once uh, you felt capitalism and uh, free markets, it's going everything else. The whole kit and caboodle of unalien unalienable rights is going to follow, and they're all going to be uh, you know de facto Americans. I, I never understood. I never. I never understood it that you've got a dye making company in, you know, Lansing, Michigan, or in Salma, California, you have a fabrication of lift devices. And you think, hmm, I can take these blueprints and go over to China. And instead of paying these guys at this time 15 bucks an hour, I can pay them two bucks an hour and deal with my Chinese intermediaries and then re import it. And it will have the same quality. It will the savings will absorb the transportation cost, and I'm just going to do that without ever thinking. I have no quality control over there, right. and I don't know when my Chinese partners, who are de facto synonymous with the Chinese Communist government, are going to expropriate 
my capital. And if they do, I have no recourse. And I don't know whether the supply chain uh, transportation system is always going to be as cheap as it was in 1988 or 1997 or 2004. And I don't care about the effect on my local community of having all these people out of work because I want to make more money. And so we just sort of went a whole hog into outsourcing and offshoring and all that. And I think now people are saying, you know what? It's not that much cheaper in the long run. You can't right. trust the transportation system to be on time. The Communist Chinese Party are toxic thieves. The country is our enemy, and we're not going to destroy American lives and throw people out of work to save a few bucks. I think that's gaining currency. And right. you know what? Right. Who we Guess who we might want to credit with helping that aposty? Who? Uh, Donald J. Trump. Right. Donald J. Trump. Because I, I can recall as clear as day when he got up on that stage in 2015 and 16, and there were 16 other candidates, and he started sounding off about China cheats and China this and China that, and we have to have fair trade with them, and we can't throw Americans out. And everybody thought he was absolutely crazy. On the Republican side, and mm -hmm. I, th I thought it was just, you know, I was just struck. I said, wow, doesn't Donald Trump have investments in China? How can he say these things? Isn't he like LeBron, James, bought off like they all are? I was just, I, I didn't know much about him, but I was very impressed. But I thought it couldn't be sincere because nobody else is saying what he's saying. Right. Now everybody is. Well, Victor... Um, I think you mentioned the border briefly. You also mentioned a piece you've written, and we'll get back to that piece on unmentionables. But uh, let's um, let's talk about the border crisis, if if uh, you will. It was at like 11 p.m. on Friday. The um, federal government released the uh, figures on border a uh, border crossings. I don't even know what the hell invasion. Uh, for the month of September, that was 227,000, quote unquote, migrant uh, encounters, that's what they call it, occurred in September. That brought it up to 2.3 million uh, for the uh, fiscal year. And, and 2.3 million means that's essentially, if you, what you said, it was going to combine the states of Hawaii and Idaho together. That's 2.3 million. There were also uh, over 850 deaths excuse me, uh, deaths, 850 deaths at the border. So, uh, Victor, we have a border crisis, and if you're going to forgive me, one of my dogs. Is, is he's, he's, ha he's having a crisis. He says, yeah, he's very upset by these numbers. Uh, actually, it's a she, so I will, we'll talk about that issue uh, later in the show. But um, so we have this crisis, and then kind of layered onto it, Victor, um, a few months ago, or uh, Governor Ducey of Arizona hit on this idea of plugging up these holes in the border wall by using these empty yeah. containers, and the Biden administration is is demanding he remove them. So he's well, got close, it, yeah. He's yeah. Close, so we have what has the Biden administration done about you, the border? They're trying to make what, it more porous. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, it doesn't exist. I, I mean that literally. It's not just hyperbole. You can just walk across almost anywhere. There's not a wall. And they don't want a wall. So if anybody puts a wall, they get rid of the wall because they want people to come across. There's only one thing and only one thing alone that will stop 
Biden and the left and the Democratic Party from having an open border. And that is, if in this election, 45 to 55 percent of Latino, Dash, Hispanic, whatever term we use, vote Republican, and they suffer a tsunami and they lose governorships and attorney generalships and lieutenant governorships and state legislature post, and they attribute that to a radical change in Latino vote, then somebody in the Democratic Party is going to say, oh, my God, we thought we got immediately win-win from this. We got people on federal assistance, good. B, we got a permanent victimized renewal, a fresh infusion of victims for us to say that the country's racist and xenophobic, good, win-win. And we have uh, voters that will be near future Democratic constituents, and maybe because illegals are voting in so many different ways under our uh, mail-in ballot vote harvesting system that we get uh, support and we can't we can't otherwise win over citizens to the degree necessary so we're going to import and we call this jack demography is destiny and if you call it as a conservative worried then you're for the great replacement theory now there's two that are synonymous that is bringing in a lot of people from a third world country into the United States illegally without audit or without background checks and without diversity and without skill sets, capital, or in many cases, a high school diploma. But we call it demography as destiny. And this is what flipped California and, and New Mexico and flipped Nevada and Colorado and, and it's going to flip Arizona, maybe Texas. But if you object, we, we're going to relabel demography as destiny as great replacement theory, the paranoid fears of a shrinking, doomed, white, soon-to-be minority that's worried about brown people. So that's how the whole argument goes. And the only way it's going to change if there is, if they look at that border and say, that is a Republican farm team coming across because they're leaving places with crooked, disgusting, incompetent leftist governments in Mexico, Venezuela, Cuba, Central America, Nicaragua, and they're from traditional religious societies. And now the Democratic Party who used to want more Catholic votes is now not Catholic working lunch market unionized party. It is transgenderism and drag shows and abortion to the last moment before birth. And it's pretty much Hugo Chavez or the Castro regime uh, in person again. So, if that happens, and I think there's a good chance it will, they'll shut the border. It may not be immediately, but they sh they'll shut the border. And you got to remember, I, I grew up with Cesar Chavez touring the 99 highway communities of the Central Valley from Delano up to Fresno. And I, I went to the Selma Park and listened to him once when I was in high school. And I can remember him talking about wetbacks. Mm -hmm. That was a word, not my word, his word. Was he impressive, and, Victor, or as a speaker, as a presence? Yeah, he, not so much as a speaker, but his face, it looked like he was he was very soft-spoken, almost feminine-voiced, and he had kind of a teary-eyed appearance of somebody who'd suffered, and he was almost Christ-like. 
And but he was a mean SOB. I mean, he got into Synanon and uh, Robert Kennedy medical fund extortion, and they went after their enemies. They went down and clubbed people on the border that were what they called wetbacks. They got in a huge existential fight with the Teamsters. The way that they broke Cesar Chavez, the corporate lettuce people and the big, big farmers, they want, they opened the border and they got the people to come up who were illegal. And they did one of two things. They either had them join the Teamsters Union, which was run basically as a subsidiary of the corporate agriculture people, or they let them, you know, they hired them without unionization and they were. Right. They were not northern Mexicans. They were from Oaxaca. That was the first new influx of what the L.A. City Council members, in a racist fashion, made fun of brown people. I think they said fejos, uglies, very racist. But they were indigenous people, and they were very hard workers. And that broke that because employers suddenly had a labor surplus. Wages went down, and the union was corrupt. And you had to pay a dollar or two over the existing rate because of all of their subtractions. They started losing elections. And then they got into this paranoia of the Chavez family and Sinanon, and they were exposed for corruption, and it just blew up. Wow. Wow. But yes, he was an impressive... I. I was 18 and, you know, my grandfather was a small farmer. We didn't use union labor. We didn't use any labor. We used our labor, (laughs) basically, except for a few plum picking crews and raisins were contract on, you know, piecemeal. But, and we had to pick, four of us had to pick right alongside people. But my point is that when I went to UC Santa Cruz, that was really the, what most radicalized me because I saw these very, very wealthy people. And it was a new campus. It was the end campus. And they were all very left-wing, very affluent. They were all, I just remember that Cal uh, College entering class of 1971, there were so many people from Pacific Palisades and Palos Verdes Estates and Brentwood. It was just amazing. It was like the whole class came from there. And they had boycott grapes. And so what I would do for the fall is I would, because I wanted fruit, my parents said, you know, you got to eat fruit, you're going to be studying. So I would pick a bunch of uh, late season plums or peaches or mostly Thompson seedless grapes that we left on the vine, didn't, you know, pick for raisins for the fall. And I would bring it up. And then the people would go like this, hey, that guy has grapes in his room. He's got grapes. And then they would knock on the door. And they would say, hey, it's come to our attention that you're eating green grapes. I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're going to take them from you. And I said, no, you're not. I said, I picked them. I grew them. I'm not going to let you have. Oh, you did. Are you in the union? No. Um, You know, and then so, you know, how I got back at them. There was a right. There was a right-wing Selma paper. It was really great, called the Selma Enterprise. Right. And there was the, the Brock family. And Roy Brock was like the most right-wing guy you can imagine. And he had a flair for language. And he would write these screeds, you know, on the op-ed every Thursday <laughs> about Chavez the communist and stuff like that. And they had never experienced it. So every Friday, every Friday, I I mean, I got the thing mailed to my dorm, and I put the whole page op-ed on the door of my <laughs> my thing, and I, it became like a, a tourist spot. 
people would knock on the door and they'd say, Victor, do you have that thing up yet? Because <laughs> they couldn't believe it. They could not believe it, you know. Wow. You, it, it, you, it was, that, you, that you would have unlawful possession of grapes is a crazy <laughs> concept. I know. They did. And then they would go down. Oh, hey, Victor, I want to tell you something. They tried to kneel you. I just went down to Safeway down there on mission. And we went, led us a sex successful chant. We went in there and chanted because they... We, we looked at their grapes and it said union and see that employers would stamp union on all their boxes for yeah, teachers. He's, right, he's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they thought, and they were trying to expose that. And then they had the breakfast fun and go to the Salinas and pick the one, one thing I'll finish. It was funny. They had lettuce day with the union. So you were, if you were UC Santa Cruz, you got in your van on a Saturday morning and you drove to Salinas and then you got to pick lettuce next to UFW members for the day. Gosh. And you should see these these LA spoiled brat kids going down there and yeah. trying to do farm work. I mean, right. you had thought they had been in combat pay. Right. They, were, they were so right. dramatic about, oh, I worked. Oh, man, I was so, you have no idea what it's like. I did this and this and this and this. And... Yeah, they're probably regaling their grandchildren with yeah. the lettuce wars. <laughs> they did a few, I mean, they did a couple of good things. There was a short-handled hoe that was a big issue. You know, we have to bend over and hoe around the lettuce, and that was unnecessary. So they allowed they outlawed that, so you could not have to bend over and use a long hoe. And it is true if you work from seven thirty to four every day, and you're working nonstop out in the fields, and you're not getting enough money to live on, and then you start to get angry. And so he tapped into that, and so there that fear did some good things. So all of a sudden you started to see, you don't take a crap out in the lettuce field, you have a porta potty and then all of a sudden the porta potty has to have running, you know, a water tank and then next right. to it, hand cleanser. And then next to it, you have an umbrella where you can eat your lunch or something. So yeah. there was stuff that was good from it. Yeah. But that's the left 50 years ago. And now, uh, or, or, uh, and now the, the, the goal of the left is to uh, keep water from going to to the agricultural lands in California, so these so there can be no jobs for for people. It's amazing. Yeah, I don't understand the left because they talk about, you know, they if you don't want exploitation and agriculture, then you have to be for mechanization. I can I'm looking right now out the window at an almond orchard, and I can tell you there is no exploitation. It's 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 almost scary. I mean, the machine right. comes through and it shakes the tree and puts a nice little roll with fans right down the middle. It dries for a couple of days and the machine picks it up, throws it up and puts it into a bin. It's taken to a mechanized hauler. And then afterwards, a computer without human agency turns on a pump and the pump pumps water to the individual you know, 140 almond trees per acre. And they have another tank next to it that drips in the proper phosphorus, potassium, nitrate, nitrogen goes into there. And then when the leaves fall off, there is no pruning. There's a guy that comes by maybe in a little three with four wheeler with the electric pruning chair and hits a limb that's too far in or something. And then... There's no thinning and there's nothing. Yeah. And so 
I look out there, it looks like you can walk in that orchard 99.9% of the time, there's nobody out there. And so there's no human exploitation. That's why there's 1.6 million acres of almonds when there used yeah. to be 100. People just say, I'm not dealing with labor anymore. I don't care what it is. I'm not dealing with it. And that's why if you go to the food market and you want to buy a peach or a plum or a nectarine or an apricot or um, table grapes, it's not going to be 99 cents a pound. It's going to be 298, 398, 498, et cetera, because of the labor costs. Well, Victor, let's uh, move on. We, we You mentioned uh, the unmentionable, and it, that has to do with a piece, a series you've written for your website. And let's talk about that right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'd like to note that the mothership of this podcast is justthenews.com. That's John Solomon's uh, website. And also, I want to get in a little plug for uh, friends at uh, on Facebook, uh, uh, the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. Hey, if you're on, check it out. Join if you're on uh, Twitter at VD Hanson. That's Victor's handle. Uh, as for me, Jack Fowler, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter. I do that for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. I want to encourage you to subscribe to it. It's totally free and it's non-transactional. It's just, hey, here's 12, 13, 14 things I've come across in the past week that I think you'll enjoy reading. I have links and some excerpts. So uh, check that out. And at the, of course, the Center for Civil Society, we try to strengthen civil society. Now, our host, excuse me, not our host, our star, uh, hangs his 
worldwide web at, at victorhanson.com. And I encourage you to, for a couple of reasons, to check that out. One is so you can see the link uh, for the app for um, the the website. A lot of a lot of uh, time and effort was put into that. So uh, find the app uh, at, the, at the Google Google Store. Um, also, uh, Victor writes original material that is exclusive to the website. Uh, those pieces are called Ultra. You can read them if you subscribe, and that's five dollars a month or fifty dollars for the whole year. If you haven't done it already and you've been listening to the show for a long time, I don't know what to say. <laughs> then what's the matter? What's the matter with you? Come on, subscribe. Uh, you will you will uh, regret not having done so earlier. Now, this is a lead-in to one of the Ultra series that Victor has written. It's called uh, The Unmentionable, Unspeakable, and Unutterable. That is the, the title. And I find this is now an opportunity for Victor to... Uh, mentioned speak and utter um and it's a wide-ranging series but one of the things he takes on victor you take on is uh, affirmative action and the fact that affirmative action has really done squat for the truly uh, poor blacks and how um uh, the elitists of america have implemented a a, a a version of affirmative action policies that may have actually made I don't think he may have. I think it's a fact. Have made the plight of uh, poor blacks even worse. Now, if you'll indulge me this, and then you can have at it, Victor. Here's a here's what you, a little passage of something you've written in this series. Um, the more the compensation and uh, reparation to middle class African Americans by Ivy League admissions and by hiring more priv- privileged diversity czars, the more one is excused from addressing the reasons why nearly half the black population is in dire straits or why 5% of the black population is proving dangerous to big city dwellers and will prove more dangerous until society simply finds the courage to help the helpless, pass on helping the already privileged, and speak the truth about the deadly dangers that criminals now pose to anyone, anytime. Victor, affirmative action has made, um, as you point out here in this passage, and please elaborate on it, uh, the way it's been used, abused, implemented, you can't talk about it, but you do, has really made things worse, not only for, for poor Blacks, but for society at large. Please, uh, Victor, exp- tell us more about this uh, series. Well, I, I, yeah, it starts about things that just are not considered palatable in the public discourse. And I've done it before in this series, but things like the enormity of Hillary Clinton's crimes, we don't talk about it. We just accept it. Going back to Romanian One or um, paying Christopher Steele to disrupt a, a uh, an election or destroying subpoena devices and emails, et cetera. And I, you know, I have Dr. Fauci, if you just think about it, what his role was, if there were to be a role to be assigned in gain of function, and what gain of function did, then it's enormous. And one of the things that I talk about is that if you look at the FBI crime statistics, and Jack, they're really out of date. They're like 2019, 2020, and they're they're very reluctant, I think, to to release any data in this particular political climate. But just take hate crimes, perpetuators of hate crime. 
the black community is about 26% of the assailants, 24 to 26% of assailants against typically Jews or Asians, etc. The white community is about 60%. The white community is 67 to 70% of the population. So it's what the left calls underrepresented and African Americans are overrepresented. But that rubric, of course, doesn't refer to every uh, age or gender group. It's talking about overwhelmingly males from about 14 to 50, which are about, you know, four out of 10 of the African American community, or in other words, probably about 5% of the uh, 6% of the population is committing uh, a quarter or more of the hate crime. And nobody's talking about it. Everybody knows it because you can see it on YouTube. You can see it on the evening news. And when you look at these graphic, kick somebody in the head, throw them in the cell. Nobody's talking about it. Eric Adams knows about it. He's the mayor of New York. By the way, and, if I may, just today came about an hour ago story. Yet another person pushed in front of a subway train yeah, in New York City. He uh, says the problem today. is that people have AirPods in their ears. But everybody knows it. Nobody will talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, the left and the, the elite left professional classes, which are the source of the original idea of affirmative action and comp uh, proportional representation quotas. And then I think we can say now they're not comp they're compens compensatory, they're repertory. In other words, if we have commercials on television, they're not going to be 13% African-American anymore. They're going to be 50%. I think that's what the data shows. And if we have affirmative action at major universities, they're not going to be 12% African-American. They're going to be 16%. And in the aftermath of George Floyd, this shows our willingness to reach out and to address historical grievances. But we're not going to talk about uh, the inordinate role of black males in violent crime, especially in the in the urban city. And to the degree we're going to talk about it, we're going to attribute it to historic racism or current racism or future racism. And that's not a viable way to talk about a problem. And everybody and what it does is it creates cynicism. And I'll give you an example. I think it was in 2018, uh, Oakland in Oakland and other areas of the Bay Area rapid transit, there was just an inordinate amount of black male violence uh, unleashed against riders, commuters. And it was captured on videos. And what was the re response of BART? They decided that to release the videos would perpetuate racial stereotypes and lead to racism. So what they basically said to their own constituencies are, we're not going to give you the information where or who or how you're going to be ass assaulted so you can make necessary adjustments in your commute patterns, i.e. don't get on BART going to Oakland after 10 o'clock at night. But because we're more worried about the per perpetrators and unfairly stigmatizing them. And that's where, kind of where we are now. And I don't know how you solve it because... Uh, when you have that level of cynicism, and you know what I always try to look at because it shows you the level of cynicism. When you see an article and you see the comments after the article, and have you noticed this, Jack, 
that what's happening now with news articles that at the very beginning they'll just put little boxes and say Twitter, you know, Reddit or something, but they right. won't put they don't do the comments like they used to. Right. So they're readily accessible to the reader because there's a disconnect. So if you see to the degree you see, let's say, Los Angeles Times story, three people uh attacked uh, and killed in a park, or a woman beaten up in the streets of Beverly Hills, or man carjacked in Brentwood, or smash and grab invades Walgreens. And uh, there's no description of, at all. Of, right. Well, you, or there's a, there's a video link in the article, and then you go to the video, and it's a group of African-American teenagers. Right. Okay, so then you look at the comments. And they're not, I mean, they're right out of Jim Crow. They're just absolutely racist. I mean, they use every uh, racist epithet. It's overreact. It's just like, what did you expect from? And it's there. And it's a reaction. You see what I'm saying? There's two, there's two poles that are drifting right. apart. Right. On the right, people are getting so frustrated that they're using racist language because they want to draw attention to it. And on the left, they're so uh, indoctrinated and slaves to ideology that they won't talk about things that are happening. And in between, there's this, there's this frustration at this disinformation. And so people make the necessary adjustments. I got in big trouble. I don't know if you remember, but Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote that thing about letter to his son. You know, remember that? Right. Yeah. And I, I wrote a response in National Review maybe eight years ago. And I said, letters to your son. I said, Ta-Nehisi Coates claims that, you know, African-American youth are inordinately stopped by the police, and they are. And that has nothing to do with the fact that 52% of all violent crime is is uh, committed by African-Americans. So if you're a law enforcement uh, officer and you're investigating violent crime, you might think that 12% to be generous of the population is committing 50% of the population, and you might make the necessary adjustments. He got, and so then I said, because of that fact, I think a lot of fathers have talks to their sons, and it goes like what my dad told me. And he had gone with my mother, uh, he took her to a, a convention, he was in the parking lot, Three African-American youths came in, tried to rob him. He didn't want to fight back in front of my mother. So he said, how much money does it take so you let us, my wife and I? It wasn't a bad neighborhood. It was down. It was, a, it was a, near the courthouse. It was a judicial conference, and he had to pay them and things like that. So he told me once, "I want you're, you're at Stanford University, and you're living in East Palo Alto. So remember, Victor, do not go out walking through East Palo Alto. And he gave me, you know what I mean? And the few times I violated that, I had an incident where, you know, a person threw something at my head and I was on a bike and two African-American youths knocked me over and tried to steal it from me while I was riding it. And of course, I clung to it like I had tree roots because it was the only bike I had and kicked back and stuff. But the point I'm getting at is that there is a also a lecture to be careful where you go. And so we have these two narratives, dueling narratives, and nobody's talking about it. And then you look at 
MSNBC, and Tucker went on a rant, but it was a good rant about Joy Reid, and I think her name was Tiffany something, uh, two anchors on MSNBC. And what they're doing every single night is they're talking about white people, as if 230 million people are an amorphous, collective, anonymous mass. Victor Davis Hanson and Joe Biden are the same yes. person. And right? that, that means that when I go to Hoover, and I talked to my two closest friends, Tom Sowell and Shelby Steele. I say hello to Kyron Skinner, a good friend. I have uh, less allegiance, friendship, comfort with them because I want to talk to a hard left Stanford professor. Are you insane? And so my point is, it's just ridiculous that all of us are birds of a feather flock together in that sense. There is no white community. There's 230 million people that other people say are white. Many of them have mixed heritages. And among that community, 50% feel the other 50% is the reason the country's going to hell. And when I say bicoastal elites, I mean bicoastal, for a great part, white elites that are left wing. And the idea that I have any solidarity with them is, is nuts. But that's the narrative you hear on MSNBC from Joy Reid, that these white people and this white people and this white people. And she should listen to herself, because if you substituted black people or brown people or yellow or Asian people, it would be racist. You'd be yanked off the air in two seconds for stereotyping an entire group like that and always, without exception, negative context. She's never used the word white in any positive context. And so, and that she's an elite who's, and so, right. Uh, one person I won't mention his name, a great philosopher once told me that if you want to look at racism in the black community, you have to go to the very wealthiest people, the most privileged because they are the most racist. They are the most racist toward darker-skinned Blacks. And we saw that in the case of Latinos with the LA City Council revelations, where they made fun of Oaxacans as ugly and what wearing shoes, I guess, for the first time or something. And the most blessed by capitalism, they have the best jobs. They are the most race conscious. Yeah. And, I, and I've always kept that in mind, and it's never proved to me that when I look back at whether they're radicals like Farrakhan or Huey Newton or Kamala Harris or the Obamas, they're not people that are victims of systematic racism or oppression. And uh, often they're of mixed heritage and often they um, have done very, very well in the capitalist system and have been beneficiaries of even-handed treatment. So, uh, we can't talk about this. We right. just don't talk about it. But everybody makes the necessary adjustments. Right. As they when, say. when it is talked about, rarely it's 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 shocking. And in my, you know, quickly, uh, excuse me while I move the microphone, and make noises. Uh, I remember uh, thirty so years ago, Phil Donahue show watching it which was about black on black racism and essentially you know black black guys complaining the darker you are the less likely a lighter skinned black woman would want to date you and it was kind of like what the heck it was out in the open and it was it was a raucous all black audience absolutely each other i think that i think that lay that's one of the reasons that there's such hatred toward clarence thomas in the black community and remember when you mentioned that 
yeah. whether in the black community or the Latino community, that there was an enormous amount of racism based on skin color. You remember what the exegesis is. Yes, there is because of white racism and white people's indoctrination of a mentality to emulate their own racism. Can I give you yeah, an anecdote you, about you, that? You this, can't, is, this is kind of striking. Watching the Clarence Thomas hearings one night in when we were living in Fredericksburg, we were living right near Mary Washington College, and there was a woman who we rented out a room to in our house. She was a little older for you know, a student. She was in her, you know, like 22, 23-ish, not exactly a freshman, white woman. And she sat down in the living room with Sharon and I and was watching. The, the, and this was the night hearing of the, night of, of the great intensity of Clarence Thomas making the accusation of the high-tech lynching. And, and she said, oh, I know what this is all about. This is the, the woman. I'm like, what? She says, it's because Nita Hill's pissed off because he's married to a, a white woman. Well, this woman who was doing the talking, who was a student at, at Mary Washington College, was in fact married to a black guy who's back in Arkansas or wherever, and she they were they were separated. I didn't I didn't know this at the time. That's what I found out right then and there. And she says, You have no idea of the hostility that black women have towards me when they see me with my husband, a black man. So this was, yeah, that's unmentionable, right? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I mean, if you're not talking about inordinate racism. You're just saying that in the case where a white woman marries a black guy and there's racism toward him, it's no different in the black community. But the, the prevailing orthodoxy is that people of color cannot, by definition, express racism. They're incapable right. of it because they're not empowered. Right. And that's not true. And they're human. Everybody is human. White people are human. Black people are human. Latinos yeah. are moving. And they act like humans. And humans can be pretty tribal. And we saw that in that L.A. County. By the way, that Caruso candidacy is going to win in Los Angeles over Karen really? Bat. Really? Yes, I think he's going to win. I know he's putting a lot more money into the race. But one of the reasons that the subtext is... Municipal area of Los Angeles is over, I think, 50% Latino. And there have been a lot of black uh, justifiable protests about Kevin DeLeon and Nuri Martinez and Gil Cedillo for their racist outbreaks about blacks, especially that horrible epithet of the young black child adopted by, I think his name is Kevin Bonin. But there's also a backlash. Kevin DeLeon hasn't resigned. Gil Cedillo, they have enormous pressures on re resignations. Nuri Martinez had to resign because she was the perpetrator of 80% of the hate speech. But the others either were silent or chipped in, I mean, a little bit. And my point is, they're not going to resign because I think in a very cynical fashion, they think in the tribal politics of Los Angeles, uh, as long as I don't be go over the line like Nuri Martinez and said, use the epithet little monkey, as long as my racist uh, sympathies were channeled within respectable cynicism, I may develop a reputation as a fighter, a tribal infighter. Right. And we are in an elemental fight in uh, Los Angeles. And so when you think, uh, when you see Wait, an Excuse African me, can, can you just... For our listeners to know that Caruso is running against, 
I, I don't remember her name. It's Karen, black... Karen Bass. She's a so, former so congresswoman. A, very so is a race uh, contingent to this. To this, uh... there is, and the, the subtext is that the African American community has radically declined in Los Angeles. And if you go into areas that used to be, you know, Inglewood or um, South Central or Compton, uh, you're talking about largely Hispanic communities. And uh, it's it's amazing that and their anger was that the number of council seats in this multi-council, multi-member council do not reflect the fact that they have a majority and they attribute that lack of representation by suggesting that the Asian and white communities reflect their reduced numbers, but the African-American communities overrepresented. Right. And therefore, they all have to stick together. And part of that stick togetherness manifested itself in a hot mic in racist terms. Right. And complaints against gays, complaints against the whites that they never stick with the Latinos, but then anger and racist outburst against the blacks. What I'm getting at is that in this tribal cauldron, which we call Los Angeles, the main tension is not Barack Obama's diversity or Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, as defined as not being white and then therefore in unison. Right. 30% of the population pitted against 68 or 70. No, no, no. It's African-American shrinking percentage of the population against an ascendant, confident, very successful second and third generation Hispanic population that feels that it should have total dominance of political power because it's the majority of population and it believes in tribal politics, at least as as em, embodied or emblemized by these three. I'm not saying all Latino, because uh, there's been a lot of criticism of them by Mexican-American writers, let's say, in the LA Times and elsewhere. But my point is that when an African-American is running against a white person, don't think that she's going to win because all of the Asians and blacks are going to vote for her right. because that has been so racialized that a lot of Asians will feel that based on statistical evidence and their own anecdotal experience that the greatest per perpetrators of hate crimes against Asians are African-Americans. And second, that Latinos and African-Americans are the most antithetical to one another in Los Angeles politics. And therefore, the majority population of Los Angeles will not automatically vote for a Democrat African-American candidate in, in the fashion that all the left-wing media outlets say is a done deal. So what I'm getting at is, right. can, can Mexican-American people vote for a white guy who's a multimillionaire? Uh, part of the overclass. Yeah, they can, because he's talking about law and order and inflation and gas prices and regulations and unaffordable housing. And Karen Bass is talking about abortion, 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 race, 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 race. And, 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 and I, so just to get the context right here, Victor, there's a there's a scandal at the city council. Uh, a Hispanic woman, Latino woman, is to uh, president of the council is tossed out at the demand. She sh maybe should have been, but black activists are yelling for her for her scalp. They get her scalp against the backdrop of a soon approaching election. And for tribal politics, how do they how do they not think that this will not 
reflect in uh in the latino community voting for the the non-black option which happens to be caruso who by the way said he's not white right didn't he say something like that like he's i don't know he's italian or something he made some crazy ass statement the he's other day. all over the political map yeah. he's basically yeah. trying to reassure everybody that he's not an old white guy as they think with a lot of money even though yeah. he's a white guy with a lot of money with a lot of money right, right. but <laughs> and, but my point is that in this initial proper anger at this and remember that the, the hot mic was about a year old right but, but in this response to it everybody thought they would resign in shame right she tried something really clever she went to of course to the diversity person of color so she said well you know i was talking about how do i always fight for people of color meaning I'm a Latino chauvinist and I wanted to get my tribe over that tribe because in my zero game, zero game view of race, one no anybody wins, somebody else loses. The pie is finite. So I but but she recalibrated that in diversity, equity, inclusion terms by saying when that I was working for people of color, i.e. so it's okay for me to be racist. And then second, when that didn't work and she had to leave, she gave her Parthian shot. And said, "Well, I was a model for young Latinas." I'm <laughs> thinking, "Okay, calling somebody a little child, uh, a little monkey, and being right. on record as hating whites, gays, right. uh, Oaxacans, and blacks is a model, you idiot." And so she's out of the picture. And so what I'm getting at is the other two participants in that comment, and there was also a union leader. I think right. he was he was gone, but. Everybody thought that the tsunami of outrage and a lot of African-American protest, I think they're even protesting at Kevin DeLeon's house. Mm. And they thought that that would wash away their candidacies. But Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon are fixtures in the the California political scene. He ran against Dianne Feinstein for senator. So they were up and coming. These were not minor functionaries. These were the creme de creme of our future political class in California. And so they were not going to be sidetracked or derailed by this. Right. Believe me. And they're just going to tough it out. And you get the impression now that in their Latino districts, I don't want to go so far as saying there were pride and that, and they were sticking up for Latino issues, but they feel that the reaction against them is racially based as well. And, they're not going to put up with it and they're going to stick it out. And I think one manifestation of it is you're going to see Caruso win. Right. Yeah. That's, that's an opportunity for the voters to, uh, to render an opinion on this bizarre scandal, but yeah. they'll, they'll render it politically. To well, I mean, say you're a Latino, right? Yeah. And you don't approve of what Martinez said. And she said most of it. Right. And, and so she's gone and she was the proverbial scapegoat that you put all the onus on. And she, t- to be fair, most of the racist stuff she said, Kevin DeLeon was, his crime was saying, yeah, when she was talking about uh, the black child that was adopted by the gay fellow council member. Right. He said something to the effect, yeah, he, it's a little accessory for him to show everybody that he's got a black child right and i guess the implication is in multiracial la he tried to deliberately 
adopt. I don't think that's true, right. but that was a black child to, to cement his fides with minority communities. And then right. Kevin, and she, he said, yeah, it's just like a Louis Vuitton bag. Like, it's like Nuri's Louis Vuitton bag. That was kind of funny in itself it's, because yeah, a, it's, those bags start at about 1500 bucks, And the idea that a woman of color fighting for the underdog walked around with a Louis Vuitton bag was kind of like Oprah complaining about her $38,000, what, crocodile bag that wasn't shown to her in Switzerland. Right. Right. So my point is that now you've got these BLM pro protesters. They've been on film. They're camped out at kevin de leon's house and i think they're starting to get counter protesters from latino community i.e to protect since that he's in physical danger so yeah. whether this thing is spiraling out of control that, that well. it, and it, and that tension which is there and i don't want to you know comment on it but i live in a predominantly mexican-american community and I can tell you in my lifetime, uh, and we have very few African-Americans, but there has been a lot of prejudice shown, but it's been based on either darker people from Oaxaca or African-Americans. Right. So there's a lot of tension there. And that tension is the white guy is just out of it. He's just saying, you know what? I made a bunch of money in private enterprise. I know how to run things. I'm going to come in here. I'm neutral in all of these Asian, Black, uh, Latino turf wars. Uh, I'm just going to be a neutral guy, but I'm just going to stick to business. And I'm going right. to get crime down. I'm going to get taxes down. I'm going to deregulate. I'm going to clean up the homeless mess. You're going to be able to walk through Venice Beach again. So I think he's going to win. Yeah. Well, Victor, um, we're running out of out of time, and I but I do th think we may look back someday. And even though this is a, an an anecdote uh, in, in history, this this uh, scandal at the L.A. City Council and whatever ramifications it might have in the the election, this may be the beginning of a of a of a. Of a of uh, the divergence well it's already diverging right? no i think the, you're right blacks black and and hispanic i think uh, it's more more than that jack i think it was the it was the ultimate trajectory of tribal politics i think people are going to listen to that and they're going to say you know what this is unsustainable this is yeah. a hobbesian bellum omnium contra omnis a war of everybody against everybody and it's yeah. not it's not sustainable right. this is what happens we're slouching toward yugoslavia and, yeah. and if we don't stop, if we don't stop, we're we're going to be in big trouble because this is out and out on fettered hatred. And we could probably find the same type of comments about Latinos among the black community if it was on our each community toward each other. Right. And if we don't get to the idea that race is incidental, not essential to who we are, we're in big trouble because we're not we're not immune from iraq rwanda yugoslavia we're not and nobody, right. we're, and nobody we're is. no nobody is and we're on our way to it if we keep right. it up right well uh here's a nation of you uh, if, if you're from scandinavia or from from uh, uh vietnam or pick place and you you come here and you'll people will you can say you're an american and you are an american and that sort of flies in the face our what what we are as a nation is 
is uh, flies in the face of this tribal stuff, except in practice, it seems like it may be going the other way. So you're right. It's uh, it's very dangerous. Victor, I do. I do want to uh, we, we've got to wrap this up. So um, we have other other topics. I hope we we could have talked about, but we'll do that on another uh, episode. Um, want to thank our listeners for uh, listening, particularly uh, first-time listeners, please, um, you know, come back twice a week. I have the great privilege to talk to Victor about issues, and then twice a week, the great Sammy Wink does the same with Victor. So we hope you uh, um, enjoy what you heard today, and that you will enjoy uh, the uh, other podcasts that we do every week. Um, people who can rate this show uh, on, if you listen on Apple. Or, or check it out on Apple or iTunes. And many people do uh, rate. It's a star rating system, one to five stars. And let's say 99% of people, even five star ratings. I will convince it has nothing to do with the host and everything to do with the brilliance of, of uh, Victor, uh, which is always on display. Some people leave comments. We thank them for that. We do read them. And here's one. It's from Ernest3535, who writes, it's titled A Thoughtful Realist. In an insane Western world, <clears throat> excuse me, I love this show. VDH provides a realistic view of our crazy Western and global world. He is a treasure when it comes to classical education and military history. He is the reason I abandoned the autistic libertarian view. That's Ernest 35, 35. Thanks to him and everyone else who's taken the time to share their thoughts Victor, thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom today, as you do uh, uh, four times a week. It was a really excellent show. And we will be back again soon, uh, listeners, with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time. I see you through the airwaves, but next time. (laughs) 